it's a privilege here to, to be here with you today for uh, the Altman Lecture Series, Dr. Altman's uh, lectureship. Um, and I appreciate very much the introductions by Dr. Salazar and, and my dear friend, Ching. So, uh, so I'll begin. So, so I'll begin um, by just um, mentioning the disclosures. Um, there, there is a company that makes a particular drug. Uh, I don't have a financial interest uh, in the company. Uh, they did provide a research grant for this drug that's entering clinical trials, Syndax Pharmaceuticals, and in unrelated work uh, have um, either sponsored research or uh, founding in uh, pharmaceutical companies or some startups. So, um, so I'll start out and, and talk a, a little about what, uh, what I hope to convey for the uh, CME learning objectives. So, so we're going to talk a little bit about the natural history of childhood muscle cancer, rhabdomyosarcoma, eight syllables to say muscle cancer. Uh, and then we'll explain the different roles that mutations may play in disease progression. Uh, we all very much um, look to sequencing a Foundation One panel, sequencing of tumors to understand the mutations, but there's context to those. And finally, uh, we'll talk a little bit about um, the, the type of vision uh, that uh, Michael Isakoff has, um, where, where there might be opportunities for children as groups of children with a particular disease or as individuals. Um, to, um, to not only uh, change their fate, but meet their destiny of being disease-free. So, uh, so I have to start out with a story, and so the story is about shame. So, so it turns out childhood cancer is an incredible success story. So the survival rate now is 83%, um, and that's up from uh, less than 5% in the early 1960s. So, um, so the, the great thing about that is we've made considerable progress um, in almost every cancer save a few. And if the survival rate is 80%, that means there will be one in five children who have had the same disease since the early 60s who, who faced the challenge of survival. So Shane was one of those. His parents have allowed me, with written permission, to tell you a little bit about his story. So as a, a toddler, um, he had a rhabdomyosarcoma that involved uh, his spine and eventually spread to his brain. Uh, the family talked with me frequently because this is a disease I study. And at the end of his life, they asked, is there a way that he can contribute? And, and so um, many people know that this is one of the things that uh, Dr. Lau holds dear, is that at end of life, if there's ability to painlessly give the gift of tissue after life, that there's so much that can be learned. And so all the achievements that we have today that resulted in the basic science discoveries that are described in the cover article of Science Signaling in November and the clinical trial um, are because of shame. So, uh, so a little bit about uh, progress, um, and it, it is the best of times for, for oncology research. Uh, we have more tools to do more things than ever before, and now all we need to do is apply them. So it turns out that every year um, there are about 12 drugs, many years, far more than that, but 12 drugs so effective at extending and saving the life of adults with cancer to earn FDA approval. But ironically, um, for children, there have been a total of seven drugs that have been so effective at extending and saving the life of kids with cancer to earn FDA approval since 1978. So, so seven and 40 years for kids, and yet 12 every year for adults. Um, most of those for, for children are for leukemia as well. 
So solid tumors, uh, metastatic sarcomas, particularly brain tumors, deserve additional attention. And and I think, you know, when you, when, so Ching is something of an expert of brain tumors, as you know, when we look at uh, the challenges physician scientists um, and the progress of the field, there are no primary indications, primary FDA approvals for pediatric brain tumors, but, um, but there are two secondary indications. They were um, in the early 2000s, so Everlimus, uh, for um, the tumors that happen with tuberous sclerosis, the segomas, um, and then uh, BCNU in 1974. Uh, for brain tumors. So uh, BCNU, of course, being a derivative of mustard gas. So, so we have all these tools, but we have the challenge to bring those tools to the benefit of the children who need them the most. So, uh, so every once in a while, you, you sort of sit back and um, you listen to somebody else talk about your field and you go, oh, I get that now. Um, so the head of the children's oncology group is Peter Adamson, and, and he's, he's a, a clever and a visionary kind of person. Uh, but he was giving a talk about, um, as he took on the, the job of becoming the head of the children's oncology group, that we should try to be more bold. And, uh, and as an example of this, he put forth uh, the example of rhabdomyosarcoma. And he says, well, you know, rhabdomyosarcoma, uh, for the patients who undergo the therapy, um, that not only, not only do these patients uh, frequently have uh, moderate to severe side effects, but but many of them actually end up in the ICU on ventilators and have life-threatening side effects. Uh, and we accept that the treatment protocol itself has about a 3.5% fatality rate from the treatment alone, not the disease, the fatality. And that despite uh, being so many papers and so many preclinical studies and so much money put forth to this effort, that the outcome uh, remains unchanged and that metastatic alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma still has an 8% overall survival rate at, at uh, 5 years and a 0% survival at 7. And so it was with that um, that he challenged us to think differently. And so here are some examples of people who have thought differently over time. Um, so my, my all-time hero, uh, does anyone recognize the laboratory on the right? Um, and, and so I'll give you a hint. This is a uh, this is a warehouse in Paris where um, where someone sifted through uh, embers uh, cinders to find radium. And um, two-time Nobel Prize winner, she uh, she not after she um, won her first Nobel Prize, she created the first portable X-ray machine. She and her daughter put it on a truck and drove it into the battlefields of World War I um, to um, putting herself and her daughter in danger to take x-rays of broken bones of soldiers, French soldiers in World War I. Um, so Marie Curie uh, is, is the, the world's greatest scientist in the world. Um, so the, the, on the left, does anybody recognize that one? You can call it out. Um, 10,000 attempts at a light bulb. Uh, Menlo Park and Thomas Edison, right? And then um, the one in the middle, um, so uh, a self-taught hacker that thought banking should be electronic, cars should be electric, and that we should go to Mars as a backup plan in case we destroy Earth. So, so that's the, right, so SpaceX, Elon Musk, and the Dragon capsule. And so those are people who thought differently, but here's what we had to think differently about. So, um, so this, this video um, describes 
Um, what we all hear about in the news, that there are breakthroughs on the basic science side. Someone discovered a target of how a cancer works. And if only those, those breakthroughs could get to clinical trials, but they face this gap, the, what's called the preclinical gap, or some here in the video it's called the valley of death, uh, where you have to sort of, you have to pressure test the idea. You, if, you, if you did the basic science work, you found a target, you found a drug that hit that target, and you tested it on maybe one or two kids' cancer for a particular disease, there is sort of like now the obligation to go forward and uh, to test maybe seven, maybe 12, maybe 17 kids' tumors um, to at, with that particular drug at doses that are clinically achievable to make sure that when that drug reaches clinical trials, that every child enrolled on that study, their parents, they know that, um, that the risk-benefit ratio um, is reasonable. And so, um, so that space uh, is not what NIH funds. NIH funds the, the breakthroughs on the basic science side. Uh, this video went viral. It had 304 views the last I checked, and I watched it 289 times before that. <laughs> so it influenced my thinking quite a bit. Um, but, but I think my, th my thinking was best influenced by my daughter when she was four and a half. So I have a, a daughter who has a, a pretty high emotional, uh, emotional IQ. And so uh, she, would, she would often ask, you know, how was your day? And, and that's kind of off, that's not the, the question I always got from, uh, from her. But one day she, she said, how was your day? You look sad. And I said, well, I was talking to Lila's dad. And, um, and Lila is not doing particularly well. So um, Lila had DIPG. I have permission to tell you this story. Um, and, and so um, she, she was in England. And so, um, so I told Addie about Lila. And, uh, and Addie said, hey, I tell you what, we've got this covered. We're going to go into the lab this weekend. I'll help you. We'll come up with a treatment and a medicine. We'll test it on other kids. And, and if it's safe, we'll give it to Lila. And so at age four and a half, she was reproducing the phase one clinical trial concept. <laughs> um, and, and so she did. She came into the lab. Um, we, we actually use a lot of, um, we actually use eggs, uh, the quail chorioallantoic membrane assay, which I borrowed from Sydney Farber's 1962 cancer paper as a way to do preclinical testing. So, so we found a, an electric toothbrush, a paint uh, stir stick, um, a, a little sort of caster, and we found a way to score eggs, and we were pretty happy with ourselves at the moment. But um, but then there was a there was that day where I came home, and and I guess she asked again, so what's wrong? And I said, well, you know, Lila passed away today, and um, and so she she thought about that, and then at night, you know, she says, you know, every night you you read to me at bedtime, and uh, you kiss me on the head, and then you go back to the lab for for another shift, but have you ever done anything in the lab that has ever saved anyone's life ever? And, and she's, again, four and a half. So, so, uh, so I, I had to just kind of give a straight up answer and I said, no, but we started to think, I started to think a little bit about what would it take to say yes? Um, and, and the answer wasn't that, um, that there was anything that I was doing wrong. Uh, universities do fabulous work and now they do more translational work than ever. Ching's an example of that. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't me, it wasn't my lab, it wasn't my university, it wasn't universities in general, but there had been seven drugs, right? Uh, at that time, there had been five drugs that had been developed for children with cancer based on knowing how the cancer works that were so effective as to get FDA approval. 
So we started to think, you know, what is it, uh, what kind of business are we in in our lab? And so I, I determined that we were in the paper grant business, that we, got a, we published papers to get grants that helped us get more papers to help us get more grants. But what we really needed to do was move basic science discovery to the start of clinical trials for children with cancer. So of course we started a startup, and we started a startup in a paint factory. So uh, there's a 70-year-old paint factory in, um, in, in Portland, Oregon, that's halfway between the medical center and the Silicon Forest, where Intel has its headquarters. Um, and we filled it with $9 million worth of equipment. Um, the first pieces of equipment were crowdfunded um, by families that are, that are here. So a little call out to Princess Kylie. So, so um, in doing so, let's see if that slide advances. Uh, in doing so, uh, we wanted to try to create um, a, a culture which was slightly different. So we put half biologists, PhD biologists, and half engineers. And this was sort of my solution to that problem about the preclinical gap because in every day of the week I can recruit fabulous PhD biologists who will understand how childhood cancers work and find a target. But then in testing those drugs and making sure the pharmacokinetic profiles of those drugs and those preclinical models was correct, that, that's often, NIH will call that incremental on any summary statement. Um, but it's crucial to getting drugs into translation. And, um, and so uh, I hired half engineers. So we have a PhD, um, we have a PhD electrical engineer with an applied mathematics background. We have a PhD biomedical engineer with an emphasis on chemical biology, mechanic, bachelor's level mechanical engineer, and a uh, bachelor's level uh, chemical engineer uh, who also hails from, uh, from this area. So Cora, she's a rock star. And so we have these teams uh, working in a matrix organization, which is kind of what pharmaceutical companies do. Like, they, they honestly work in teams and they say, it doesn't matter who gets the credit as long as the job gets done. Um, and in doing so, uh, we had to recruit from a group of people who believed in, in teamwork uh, and working for a mission. And it's, uh, it's really neat to work in a place where the median age is 27. So we love our millennials and, um, because, um, because they'll, they'll work all kinds of hours as long as you have bottomless trail mix in a pizza oven, and, which is exactly the, the truth. Um, and, and they work towards a mission, and they're surrounded by pictures of families, um, and, and uh, they work as a team. And our, our, goal is, um, our goal was to get a drug per year into clinical trials, but eventually to get five drugs every year into clinical trials. And so here's our process. So we start out with the families, and we identify, and this, of course, is Kylie's family. You, you'll recognize Emily, who's sitting in the front row. Uh, and her family, uh, and James, he's fabulous, and Allie, the older sister. Um, and so you identify a, a driving clinical problem. And in this case, and I have permission to say this, it's um, rhabdomyosarcoma if metastatic. And then you, you sort of say, okay, well, how does that cancer work and what is the target? And once you've figured out what the target is, then you do the preclinical studies to show that you, can, that you have the repeatability and if you do that small unit of research, which is about $400,000, uh, then, you, then you can go to the pharmaceutical companies who never in a million years would have set up, set up a childhood cancer R&D program. And they go, wow, 
you know, you've totally de-risked this for us. Now we can invest six to $900,000 in putting drug at the CTEP portfolio for you to do trials. And the cooperative groups go, we've never had a pediatric study plan this, this rigorous, 17 patient-derived xenografts in our most recent study uh, that we published. So, um, and so they'll say, of course, we'll do the clinical trials at our own cost. And so drug development, which is generally thought to be a $10 million endeavor, uh, if you take repurposed drugs and you do solid preclinical research, basic science and preclinical research, you can do it for just $400,000. And we've done that uh, a number of times, and I'll tell you about that. But, but, um, but our group is called the Children's Cancer Therapy Development Institute, and, uh, and it was created in, in honor of, of another um, uh, therapy development institute. Did anybody do the Ice Bucket Challenge? So there we go, all right. And, and so that benefited uh, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Well, well so that, that money went to the ALS Therapy Development Institute, a nonprofit biotech, um, whose mission is to put the correct drugs into clinical trials. And so here's the cautionary tale that they gave in a commentary in Nature. So they took um, the best, best, most promising drugs published by academics, and so we have a list there of maybe eight or nine, and um, all which were perceived to have benefit, which was the, the blue bar there. And then they, they benchmarked them. They did a Pillsbury Bake Off to say uh, what was the best drug using the same consistent models. And in their models, they demonstrated that virtually none of the drugs had benefit. In fact, some of them had untoward effects. And yet all of those drugs had gone to clinical trials and demonstrated no activity. So, so the kinds of rigorousness that, um, that Dr. Lau brings with the uh, Jackson Laboratory PDX program and, and their biology is, is bound to make our field better and address that problem. Now CCTDI does its small part, so we've had papers now. Um, we've taken uh, two drugs and three of our papers in nature medicine, genes and development, and science signaling, and moved them to three cooperative group trials. And I'm going to tell you about um, Intenistat um, in, in, a, in a second here. I'll also say that partnerships are key. And being a nonprofit biotech, we have um, the freedom to operate to make any agreement we, that we'd like. Um, so uh, with some preparation uh, the, and some friendship with the universities, uh, we received ownership of the genetically engineered mice that I made, like personal ownership. Uh, so that I could make an agreement with Novartis to let them use the, the mice and the cell lines for anything they wanted for three years, which you'd never do with anything uh, with a pharmaceutical company, especially if you had um, a finding on something like breast cancer. That would be a terrible precedent to, to let those resources out and give up the potential royalties. But for a disease for which there are only 350 children affected in North America per year, there's not a lot of profit to be made. So I provided them the cell lines and the models, and in exchange they said, well, we'll screen some drugs. And I said, well, how many drugs? They said 640. I'm like, that's awesome, because there's only been 600 drugs studied since the beginning of time for this disease. And they said, no, you don't understand. We're going we're to study 640,000. But we can't slow down our breast cancer research, so we're going to do this on the weekend. So down in, in San Diego, they have enough robots to fill a football end zone. And uh, there was one badly behaved robot, and the technician had to go in once for 20 minutes to, to um, set that uh, robot in line. Uh, but in one weekend, um, they screened 640,000 compounds. 
uh, and delivered the results in an Excel file. There were 30,000 hits, 2,400 super hits, and 446 super duper hits. The top hit, a simple cardiovascular medicine uh, that I'm sure uh, that Leon has pres prescribed many times for his patients, available since the early 90s as an extended release capsule. And our biggest research problem in trying to understand its mechanism is that we can't find a cell line that's resistant to it. If we, if we had ones that were sensitive and resistant, we could narrow the mechanism. But it's just a fabulous uh, drug. The other advantage of being geographically where we are near the Silicon Forest uh, is that we are uh, very near the headquarters of Intel. So I happen to have two retired Intel vice presidents on our, our board. Uh, one, he automated Intel, and the other um, created the Haswell chip that's in everybody's laptop that makes it run so fast but have such great battery life. Uh, and his daughter actually was um, a childhood leukemia survivor. And so, um, so back when we were getting going and the science was going well, he said, you know, I'd like to help out a little more. So he stepped in. So the vice president of Intel that designed your laptop stepped in for six months to be our interim executive director while we ramped up the science. Um, and uh, very fortunately invited, um, invited someone to our back dock barbecue. Again, we're in a paint factory, right? So we have a back dock barbecue and someone comes over named Gans, uh, like Gonzo and the Muppets, except his full name is Ganapati Srinivasa. He, he, was the, um, he was the chief architect for the first eight generations of the Xeon processor, which if you're in bioinformatics, you know that the Xeon processor is the heart of every server. Intel servers have 97% market share. He was given a, um, he was given a reward for creating the, the profit center for Intel. And they said, what would you like to do? And he said, well, I'd like to design a heterogeneous computer that has a Xeon processor as its central brain. It'll have a GPU for doing math coprocessing and then cell phone processor for quick low energy decisions. And he was challenged by this fellow. Fellow is the highest level of engineer at Intel. Um, to come up with a with an application that would merit this. And he said, well, genomics, because there are 600,000 Americans uh, that die of cancer every year, um, and they could all benefit from sequencing 3.2 billion base pairs of their tumor DNA, comparing it to 3.2 billion base pairs of their normal DNA. And so uh, he created the Intel Collaborative Cancer Cloud with MIT and the Broad Institute and took the computing time for uh, sequence analysis down from 10 days to six hours by optimizing the code to the Xeon processor. Uh, he also then open-sourced all that, um, promptly retired, which was, seemed odd. And I asked him, what are you going to do at your young age and your retirement? And he said, we're going to commercialize our, um, our open-source software for hospital systems so that every patient coming through knows they're getting state-of-the-art care. And I asked him, well, where are you going to start your startup? And he said, in my garage. And which, which, of course, you know, that's where you start all startups. And I asked him how many people, and he said six. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the loft in our building uh, for a dollar for, for three years. And he said, yeah, I don't know. So he comes back the next day and he says, you know, I, I, okay, the dollar, but then I'll take all your data from the last 11 years, put it in the data structures, build the state-of-the-art sequence analysis pipeline, and maintain it for free indefinitely. And then we'll call it a deal. And I said, that's fine with me. <laughs> so, so back to Shane. So, um, so Shane's, um, Shane's tumor from his legacy gift, his, the painless gift of tissue afterlife, a research autopsy tissue which came from CHOP. Um, 
the tissue got turned into a mouse model at Jackson Laboratories and a, and a, a patient-derived cell line. And from that, uh, we went to address this disease. So rhabdomyosarcoma has two main types, uh, embrinal, which is about half the cases, and then alveolar. So embrinal uh, is a disease with a relatively reasonable outcome of metastatic, about a 43% survival. Alveolar, again, I told you that it's um, not survivable past seven years of metastatic and it carries a PAX3 FOXO fusion. So um, the interesting thing about the, the biology of the disease is this very difficult cancer that has either PAX3 or PAX7 fused to FOXO1, um, it has virtually no other mutations. It just has that one fusion oncogene which fuses the DNA binding domain of, a, of PAX to the transactivation domain of FOXO and, um, and results in what's thought to be an inappropriate muscle development program after birth. Now there are a number of other um, mutations found in embrinal rhabdomyosarcoma and probably in about 55% we can point to a mutation that's a driver, which also means in about 45%, despite our best efforts, we don't know what drives the disease. So I, I trained now many moons ago uh, with um, someone my kids call Uncle Mario, Mario Capecchi, a co-recipient of the 2007 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for coming up with the idea of being able to genetically modify mice. There are a lot of people in the audience that would never eat GMO food, but let me tell you, those genetically modified organisms, those mice, are fabulous because at 2 o'clock on a Wednesday in a teenage mouse just in the muscle of the limb, you can trigger the mutations found in that child's cancer watch it grow locally, watch it invade, watch it move to the lymph node because it's expressing firefly luciferase and jellyfish fluorescent protein, watch it move through the bloodstream to the lungs, and then treat the mouse and reverse the process to see what's effective. These mice that we created um, and reported um, in back-to-back -back papers in, in, um, in genes and development later in cancer cell um, have the same histopathology, the same natural history, um, and in the same pet avidity as the human disease. Um, but it wasn't really that easy, so, so let, me, let me delve into the subtleties here. So, it, so I often joked with Mario that we went through 11,704 mice to, um, to get those two papers. And, um, and he thought that it was a real joke, but it was the actual truth that we did because we didn't know what the cell of the origin cell of origin of the disease was so we had to try everything before birth so um, in a muscle lineage and everything after birth and what we came to find was that um, that there were early intermediate and late stages of muscle development before birth and similarly early intermediate and late phase of muscle development after birth. And so if you go down to the gym and you work out hard and you pop a muscle fiber, your satellite cell is going to, let's see if I can get it back, your satellite cell is going to divide in two, it's going to make one stem cell back again and the other one's going to turn into a myoblast that fuses to repair that myofiber that, that popped. Whereas here you have the first, second, and third trimester of muscle progenitors. So what we did was we introduced the PAX3-FOXO mutation and a P53 mutation, um, so a gain of function and loss of function at, at the different stages of muscle development before birth. And in every case, it gave rise to alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma, but the fetal myoblast was the most metastatic and the most clinically reflective. 
but there was no phase of muscle development after birth which gave rise to the disease, even though it's the same mutations. Similarly, with embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma, we could introduce p53 and or patch mutations, and in the intermediate phase of muscle development uh, before birth, it would give rise to the toddler version of the disease, but after birth, the same mutations gave rise to the spindle cell teenager variant, and so it, it is to say that the cell of origin conveys a memory to the tumor cell of where it came from that influences what it looks like under the microscope. But what we later came to understand is the cell of origin conveys a memory, an epigenetic memory, to the tumor cell of where it came from that influences not only the histopathology but also what treatments it's sensitive to. So, um, so um, to kind of uh, set, a, uh, set a context for, for why we studied Intenistat the way we did, I need to take a side journey and uh, let you know a little bit about the way that Mario thinks about cancer. Whenever possible, steal great ideas from smart people. Um, so, so Mario and I often talked about building those mice that took 11,000 mice to build. And, uh, and one thing that we had to decide was what was the cell of origin? But then the other question is, are the, the mutations, uh, initiating mutations, necessary and sufficient or necessary but not sufficient? Pax-Refoxo is necessary but not sufficient. It needed a cooperating initiating mutation, which was loss of P53 function. Once a tumor is started, it has to be maintained. Uh, people call that a driver, right? So, so it turns out that the driver mutations for alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma do not, do not reflect um, having Paxfoxo, which was necessary to start it. It was necessary, but not sufficient to start the tumor, but not necessary to drive it. You can turn it off tumors cook along just fine. But many of these patients, they have disease that begins to have new properties of invasion, lymph node metastasis or lung metastasis. Those are often the results of modifiers. And so, um, so RB is one example of that. And finally, once your patient has been treated, uh, then there's um, a resistance that occurs and those are yet additional epigenetic or, or DNA mutational events. So it was really sort of this end, end stage work that we realized Paxfoxo was playing uh, an important role. So the natural history of metastatic alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma is that it's very treatable. 85% of patients will respond the first time and then they'll respond the second time and the third time. It's sort of after the fourth and fifth time they stop responding. So another way to show that um, is that if you, have, if you have rhabdomyosarcoma and you don't have the fusion, your survival rate is around 75 to 85%. That's pretty good. But if you have the fusion, um, particularly if it's metastatic, your survival rate is around 35 to 40%. So there's an almost a 50% difference in survival attributable to one gene. Now when since BCR able have we ever been able to say that? one gene might result in a 50% difference in 10 years survival clinically. But that's what this disease does. But again, what's the context for this Kaplan-Meier curve? This is patients being treated, right? And they're being treated with chemotherapy and radiation. So I had a, a very talented postdoctoral fellow um, named Ken. Ken was from Japan. And I wasn't always sure about Ken's, uh, Ken's English, but one day he came in and he said, the cells blink. And I said, what do you mean they blink? And he says, come look. And honest to goodness, in time lapse, 
uh, where Pax3-Foxo uh, was going on and we turned on in the mice the yellow fluorescent protein at the same time, they would blink right before they divided. And so we came to understand that Pax3-Foxo was expressed not in G2, not when cells were 2N, but when cells were 4N, and particularly when they were in the G2 phase of the cell cycle and not the M phase, which that has to sound crazy, doesn't it? But why? But but think about all the all the translocations that you see in childhood leukemias and cancers. Don't you always assume that it, it's a driving mutation and it's on continuously all the time? But what if it was actually only on at certain phases of the cell cycle? If anyone wants to ask me about the CML story, I can tell you why it's, CML requires so much Gleevec. But but we we figured out Paxfoxo was on in the G2 phase of the cell cycle. And it turned on genes that created a process called checkpoint adaptation. So it turns out if you're a yeast, um, and this is from the biology of yeast, that um, you're a unicellular organism fighting for your life under any circumstance. And there will be times in your cell cycle that you will absolutely positively want to tolerate double-stranded DNA breaks or mitotic catastrophe in the hopes of, of self-survival. And so that's exactly what the genes are uh, that promote um, an lengthened, um, a lengthened cell cycle checkpoint repair time, and then the surviving uh, inhibitor of apoptosis-mediated uh, cell survival. Now, most of the cells will go on to G0 and end up necrosing instead of apoptosing, but some of them will sit as quiescent cells to come back with those relapses for disease. So we um, so knowing that uh, epigenetic uh, factors were important for muscle development, and knowing that there was an epigenetic memory to tumor cells, we took a panel of epigenetic drugs. Uh, one of them being a, a New England-based pharmaceutical company's uh, HDAC inhibitor, class one HDAC inhibitor against HDAC one, two, and three. And it turns out, as you give it, you get a dose-dependent decrease in the Pax3-Foxo messenger RNA. You're affecting the transcript, and you get a dose-dependent effect on the uh, protein as well. And we narrowed it down to an action predominantly of HDAC3 through genetic knockout studies. We took the drug, and knowing that what it would do, would it would sensitize uh, to chemotherapy and radiation, and we tested that. Um, and so here we use the combination of antinostat with vincristin, and uh, we did it in uh, nine patient-derived xenografts from uh, alveolar disease and eight from embryonal and pleomorphic rhabdomyosarcoma. At clinically achievable doses, we could suppress the Pax3-Foxo protein. Uh, these are studies done in collaboration with the Jackson Laboratory with their models, as well as Champions Oncology. We actually did these outside of uh, CCTDI to make sure that these were valid results because we've gotten plenty of good results in our transgenic model. And if you look at the red line, it's a repeatable result. And so uh, we delved into that. And so I've, I'm sparing you the extra hour lecture on the mechanism, but I'll summarize it here. So it turns out antinostat, but not another pediatric uh, HDAC inhibitor called panabinostat, inhibits HDAC3 and decreases the amount of SMARK-A4 made. SMARK-A4 is a component of the SWIFT-SNF complex that Mike Isakoff uh, played a, a fundamental role in understanding for childhood cancers. Um, without SMARK-A4, you can't get repression of a microRNA, and that microRNA is called microRNA27. When you have lots of microRNA27, it moves over to the Pax3-Foxo messenger RNA, finds intron 4, and causes it to be degraded. So, um, so this chimeric transcription factor, Pax3-Foxo, which nobody could figure out how to drug, 
Well, it turns out you can prevent it from ever having been made simply by giving Intenistat. All right, so, so I promised to give some learning objectives, and here, here was something steep on my learning curve. So there, there's lots of ways to get drugs into clinical trials, but there have been no drugs put into COG rhabdomyosarcoma sarcoma phase two or phase three trials for, uh, for metastatic or high-risk disease in over five and a half years. And so, um, and that has to do with a little bit of dueling, dueling criteria. And so, um, so we, we just met every criteria. And, and that's how we got ADVO1513 opened. Um, and now the phase 1B cohort expansion. But, but there, are, there are those who believe that, um, that, that perhaps you just need to try drugs. That worked really well, bringing the cure rate from 5% to 83%. Um, and so uh, the head of the COG says, you know, any amount of preclinical evidence would be enough to start a clinical trial. And the real experiment is in the phase 1 trial is to see where we get signal. Now, if you're a scientist, um, in uh, the, the scientific council um, at Children's Oncology Group, the perception is that you can't really move to a phase two unless you've seen signal in the phase one. And, um, and the perception of the clinical trials evaluations program is that, um, is that the drug activity that you see has to be single agent and not in combinations. Now, now let's think about that a little bit. Like, wouldn't we all be really excited to have a 12 to 17% increase in survival for metastatic alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma? sarcoma? But, but to find that 12 to 17%, we'd probably have to do a phase three trial of a drug combination. And that drug combination probably isn't going to have signal in the phase two. So, you know, it really is sort of, um, it is sort of time to think about clinical trial designs and what our expectations of drugs are and, um, and how we test them, how we qualify them. So, um, so I'm gonna end here uh, with a few slides uh, that's uh, taken away from, um, from Michael's great research. Um, Michael asked the fundamental question that Shane's parents asked, um, and that is, uh, and it's the same question that uh, showed up in the Disney Pixar movie, Brave. Did anyone see that movie? Right, so she, so the, um, so the daughter of a of a um, Viking chief, uh, she she didn't want to have the fate of being married off. She wanted to be chief herself, so she wanted to avoid her fate and move on to her destiny. And this type of um, type of situation is what Michael would call conditional probability. So Michael studies osteosarcoma, and what are the chances that you'll survive if you've had a relapse disease? He recently published a beautiful paper on that. Well, imagine you take that type of idea and then you take all the power of the genomics that, that Ching can achieve with, um, with, uh, with the Children's Hospital in combination with the Jackson Laboratory and say, we're going to collect a bunch of data about patients at different time intervals. We'll just assess their stage, whether they have a, a small tumor that's not locally invasive, a tumor that is locally invasive, one that's gone to the lymph node, one that's gone to the lungs. We, there may even be patients that graduate to stage five, unfortunately, but through research autopsies, we can study those. And we'll look at the different stages of, of diagnosis. That's where we obtain most of our specimens for analysis. But if only we can get sequencing of specimens that are re-biopsied when patients relapse on therapy or further down the line, we'll be able to ask that question, uh, what, what is it that a patient with a small 
invasive tumor, what's their likely fate? And their most likely fate is to be disease-free after the end of therapy. But there may be a small chance that that patient uh, will go on to have metastases and then eventually death. So uh, if you could link that, that conditional probability of going from a T2 to an M1 um, stage of disease and, and pinpoint the Ezrin gene, then naturally the next patient that comes in who's a T2 patient, you'll, you'll assess whether they have the Ezrin gene and then you'll give them an Ezrin inhibitor. It's a pie in the sky idea and, and it may be more complex than that, but it's a good idea. And I think, I think Dr. Salazar, he, he thinks every day about how he can improve global outcomes for patients uh, in Connecticut, in the Connecticut Children's Medical Center, and he knows that there's, there's lots of children's hospitals across the nation, and they're all achieving uh, a certain amount of knowledge from treating their own patients. And, and not to be too philosophical, um, but, but these days in the millennial-based era and the big data era, it turns out innovation is cooperation. And that the truth is, there can be a lot of smart people, but no, no single smart person can be, collective, can be smarter than the collective knowledge of all smart people. And so in order to improve quality, expand access, and reduce costs, those three things go hand in hand, it'd be really nice to share data. And so I think one of the things that you'll see as the collaboration with Jackson Laboratories goes forth is that you'll be collecting data on your patients, it might be the, the clinical information in the electronic medical record. It may be the histopathology, uh, where you're looking at the different types of cells on a scan of a histology slide from the path lab. It may be sequencing of their tumor. It may be MRI scans to looking at how many invasive fingers uh, a tumor has into the local tissue. And there'll be big data machine learning signatures for those. And your data can be securely shared through Intel Collaborative Cancer Cloud technology, which is now commercialized by ODA, which I don't have any interest in, but also a company recently purchased by Roche called Nabify, also spun out of, of Intel, where you'll have a certain patient who has a certain level of disease and has certain genetic abnormalities, and you'll go like, there's 40 things in that foundation medicine report to follow up on or in that sequence, in exome sequencing to follow up on. But by, by posing a question without actually delving into a patient, into other hospitals' records, but simply posing a question through what's a, an honest broker uh, server system, you'll say, Art, do you have any patients that meet these following criteria? And they'll go, oh yes, we have, we have this many in Toronto, they have that many at uh, Dan-Farber. And, um, and through big data analytics, be able to narrow down to what are the key genetic abnormalities and the possible interventions for your patients. And so I'll stop there and uh, summarize that, that, um, that we're in a wonderful era. There, there has never been a better time to have progress for childhood cancer. Um, that it all begins with clinicians who recognize driving uh, clinical problems. The families aren't bad at it either, if you ask them. Um, uh, they'll, they'll be able to narrow things down quite a bit too. And in the conversations with the scientists, understand the driving biologic problems behind the driving clinical problems. And if you're rigorous, as all of studies are that are done uh, in Qing's laboratory over the year, you can, have, um, you can have better outcomes and bring us to a world where all childhood cancers are universally survivable. Thank you.